excited that for our final session of this season, we have someone we admire greatly, Gunther Handel at Tulane University. And Gunther has been extremely kind in making time to talk to us, despite the fact that they have, as all of our listeners will know, had some really serious uh, problems down in New Orleans with the weather and the university's been closed. So thank you so much. And we apologize for having bugged you repeatedly, but this is a story that we do not want to be lost. And the story here is one that we have talked about before on the podcast, but at least on Mark and I, my part, with a remarkable lack of actual knowledge. And that is the story of the Haitian independence debt of 1825. And in the course of our investigations of this incredible debt, we came across the name of Gunther Handel. And it was a name I think maybe we got from one of the New York Times reporters uh, who was in investigating the story or from Ira Kurzban, a lawyer who had represented the Haitians during the one attempt to bring, a, to bring an action to recover on this debt. But regardless, through our dear friend Adam Feibelman at Tulane, who said that Gunther was one of the most knowledgeable and erudite people in the area of international law, uh, we reached out to him and he was incredibly generous in talking to us. And so Gunther, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, my, my pleasure uh, joining you in this and uh, I look forward to your specific questions. So, Gunther, if you don't mind, we'd love to start with just a little bit of background on what kind of law you practice and how you became involved in this incredible story. Yeah, I have been teaching public international law here at Tulane for quite a long time now, and um, I teach beyond public international law, uh, other courses, all related to public international law, like law of the sea, international institutional law, and so forth. And one of my students uh, in 2002, I think it was, um, it was a really an excellent student in my public international law class. Um, he called me up and said, uh, I have, I'm clerking right now or working in the office of Ira Kurzban who is a premier uh, immigration lawyer in Miami. And he teaches right now also at the University of Miami Law School. And at that time was a personal lawyer for President Aristide of Haiti. And he said, we have an issue here and uh, we might want you to take a look at it and see whether you can help us. And this started the conversation. And um, so Ira Kurzban, um, this personal lawyer of uh, President Aristide um, hired me as a consultant on the question of how to go about conceivably of, uh, trying to recoup the uh, amount of money that um, 
Haiti had been forced to pay uh, to France following the 1825 agreement. So, Gunther, can can I ask um, for sort of high level question? So, we we asked our students in our international debt class a question very similar to the one you just posed. Sort of if sort of if one wanted to think about bringing a legal claim to seek compensation for this. What would one do? Where, what claim would it be? Where would one bring it? And our students went through this arc where, you know, like many law students, they first think, oh, you sue, it's easy, you get a judgment, and then you, you grab assets. And then they came around to realizing the difficulties with each step of that process. And the near impossibility of collecting on a judgment, assuming one could ever get one against France. And part of our goal was to get them to think in a more nuanced way about the role of litigation in correcting a real historical wrong like this. And I'm wondering if you can shed some light on how you think about that question. What, what, what does one hope to accomplish through litigation and, and how does litigation help accomplish it here? Well, um, I would say there are two aspects to this. One is you have to uh, understand who are your proper partners in this uh, effort, as it were, or who are the targeted respond respondents, right? And secondly, whether um, litigation is at all useful and in this particular context, of course, I had to familiarize myself with the facts of the case, and it became pretty clear that uh, among the conceivable uh, responsible parties for this uh, loss, of, massive loss of uh, money, the only, uh, the only proper target for an attempt by Haiti to recoup any amount of thereof would be the government of France rather than some of the um, other potentially involved private parties. Uh, there was a lot of talk about, you know, French banks being intermediaries, et cetera. And uh, you probably know that uh, there's also one of the banks in New York that played a role. And so, of course, you could say, well, maybe we could have some claims against these intermediaries and so forth. But it turns out the obstacles to recover against these private entities uh, would be enormous. And two, of course, your cause of action, to the extent you do have one, is uh, one that lies with the French government side. And so the question was, of course, whether at the outset, whether it was a reasonable pursuit of mine to try and find, find out whether litigation could work. And uh, at the beginning of this exercise, I very quickly clarified that litigation was per se not the primary objective. Rather, of course, the primary objective would have to be to uh, develop a possible uh, strategy to recover some of the money. And that might mean uh, to put political diplomatic pressure on the uh, French government to multilateralize the issue of the independence debt to the extent possible. And so you start thinking, not just in terms of court cases, litigation in certain venues, right? But you have to uh, take a much broader uh, perspective and say, okay, the world is my um, 
stage right now and what would work. That said, uh, it is also crystal clear that you only have um, a chance of ex uh, exerting significant pressure on the other side. If you do have some legal arguments that could be made to work, conceivably even in a legal setting and conceivably in a uh, judicial setting. And so this is how I approached the, the, the whole uh, uh, question of the ind independent state. Might I take you back to the first phone call from your student uh, or maybe the first conversation with Ira uh, without revealing anything inappropriate. I'm just curious as to how does one, you know, you are uh, such an eminent scholar and have been for a long time, uh, world renowned. And you, somebody calls you and says, uh, here's this 200 year old debt that we want you to help us recover on and we want you to spend all your time uh, working on it, even though uh, no one for 200 years or ha has even tried to recover on this. Do you just think, did you think this was a joke? Did you think this was utterly crazy that they would think you would spend time on this? How does one even, I mean, when I first came across this and, you know, our students, of course, they want to sue everybody all the time. I just thought this this was loony. It's not possible. The, it, the reason it hasn't been tried is that it won't work. Well, uh, I would say this, that, um... First of all, I do like challenges. Secondly, I had plenty of time because I was on a sabbatical. And thirdly, um, when I looked at the facts of the case, I thought there is indeed a very strong moral claim for reparations. And I also, uh, the more I looked at it, and it didn't take me very long to, to, to come to the conclusion, I thought there was also a very strong legal basis for a claim that could be made. And so I set out and I didn't promise that I would be able to deliver. And as a matter of fact, in my final report uh, that I delivered in November, I think of uh, 2003, I said so. I said, well, uh, there is indeed a very good chance, albeit one uh, where we don't have guarantee of success. And by the way, this my, uh, assessment of mine was confirmed by two other eminent lawyers, one of whom was Richard Falk, who did the review here as to the merits of my claim. He actually thought I was a little cautious in my approach and it was more optimistic about the success. Um, we can talk about that. And then uh, Pia Klein in, in Brussels, who is an eminent uh, professor there and uh, uh, practitioner of public international law. And he, unlike me, appears regularly before the International Court of Justice in various cases as an agent for this or that side. So that said, um, yeah, it, 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 I, I was motivated by, uh, by what I found, uh, you know, the, the, the extraordinary steps that the French government had taken to uh, put pressure on the Haitian government and 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 force them to pay uh, for what 150 years a debt that they should never have had to pay. Period. 
And can we talk a bit about the the kinds of claims or claims that you think are worth considering in a situation like this, and and where you where you wind up um, coming out in terms of what makes the most sense to to assert? So I, I mean, I'm I am surprised, although heartened, that you seem to have such confidence that the the underlying claim here is as strong as it is. I'd, I'd love to hear more if you can tell us. Yes, well, uh, I mean, I I first had to clarify whether or not there was an, uh, indeed a basis in public international law for a claim against France, and there is. Um, yeah, there's an agreement between uh, France and Haiti um, that was reached in uh, 1825 albeit uh, under threat of the use of force, and we're still um, uh, under threat to invade and re-enslave the population there and restore the, uh, the status quo ante. Uh, you had this uh, armada of French naval vessels all of a sudden appear in 1825 at the, out, at, at, at the port of uh, Port-au-France, and uh, the, the uh, commanders there sent an ultimatum to the president of uh, the, the Republic of Haiti to the effect that either you pay the amount that we, uh, we think is due to France, 150 million gold francs at the time, or else we're going to bombard the city. Uh, we launch uh, the invasion force and we take the country back to where it was. That was the situation that the Haitian government faced. And so they acceded to that and they started paying. And as you know, in 1838, uh, uh, the amount was reduced simply because uh, the French government realized that uh, the country could not possibly meet the uh, payments that would have been necessary under the original agreement of 1825. So here we have a situation where um, one country makes a, leg a legally binding arrangement with another one, where under Haiti is now being forced to pay up an enormous amount of money, which uh, in today's figures would be well, uh, would be today, as of 2021, 31 billion US, which was being paid off over uh, a very long period of time. Some, some people say that the last payments were made in uh, 1947. Some other sources indicated uh, the payments were made until 1951. Um, the problem with this initial uh, agreement is that uh, that it runs counter to uh, then already prevailing ideas about limits uh, of uh, a treaty, uh, the limitations on treaties um, that could be entered into. Uh, I'm not talking about per se the threat of the use of force as such, but rather the threat of re-enslavement. And um, what I concluded by looking at the, uh, the evidence um, that would be uh, sort of uh, 
available at the time. And of course, you have to uh, apply the, the, the rule of intertemporal law. In other words, we can't apply today's standards to a treaty that was concluded in 1825. Under today's laws, of course, and understandings, uh, such a treaty as concluded if the Treaty of 1825 would be absolutely null and void. No question about it. It would violate use Kogan's principles. The idea of use Kogan's, of course, is a relatively recent um, uh, creature. Uh, did not emerge until the 20th century. Um, nevertheless, um, and even though treaties were very often concluded under the threat of use of force and nevertheless, despite that fact, deemed to be valid in the 19th century. If a treaty was uh, concluded with the aim of, object of, of subjecting population to uh, conditions that violated the bonus mores of the time, then even a treaty uh, at the time could be deemed uh, invalid. And so we have a situation where uh, I thought this treaty was indeed uh, offensive to justice and all duties of humanity. Um, and as a result of that um, could be deemed to be uh, invalid. The basis for that once again is the threat of re-enslaving a population that escaped slavery, had abolished slavery, and uh, declared its independence. And uh, if you look carefully at what happened um, at the end of the uh, uh, Vienna Congress 1814, and even before then, with a number of other, the bilateral agreement between France and Great Britain, all of which acknowledge formally that um, slave trading as such is uh, a practice that need to be phased out and so forth. So we have a situation, and this is a little complicated, I admit. We have a situation where there is a very strong sentiment among writers, international law, um, and I just want to refer to Emmerich de Waddell or William Hefter, the German um, 19th century international lawyer, who specifically says, well, a treaty concluded at the time, um, if it uh, is a state's purpose to introduce or maintain a system of slavery, it, it will be deemed invalid. Uh, and these, of course, are representatives of what's called natural um, law school, which at that time, of course, was predominant in uh, international, public international law at the beginning. So, of the so Gunther, can, can I just interject for, for a second? To what extent yeah. does the... Uh, so to what extent does one have to accept the characterization of the 1825 treaty as sort of, um, imposed under threat of reimposition of slavery and, and from from whose perspective so does it matter whether the that was the goal of Charles X does it matter whether 
the reasonable perception of the Haitian government might have been, oh, we need to agree to this to um, avoid further uh, French attempts to to reimpose slavery. And to what extent does it matter whether there was, in fact, a credible threat of reimposition at the time? I'm, I'm asking in part because my limited awareness of the historical record is is um, well, first of all, very limited. But also, um, you know, on the face of the treaty, it is characterized as what looks more like a sale of recognition of the Haitian government. Um, and some uh, some accounts have the indemnity being initially proposed by the Haitians. So I, I'm wondering, sort of, whose perspective are we? Uh, are we adopting when we uh, when we ask whether the treaty reflects some underlying threat of the reimposition of slavery? Well, I think the facts would speak for themselves. Uh, Napoleon very clearly stated uh, so, and his generals did the same. Leclerc um, that they were going to reintroduce slavery. Remember, this was a very short-lived. Um, abolition of slavery in France. It was reintroduced then after the revolution again. And of course, um, the effort, the military effort preceding the independence of Haiti was clearly aimed at restoring the status quo ante, which would have meant restoring the system of slavery, which would assure France a steady stream of income uh, that they were used to. The uh, when Charles X sent this armada, uh, the purpose of that was essentially the same. They said, well, you have two, there are two possibilities. One is you pay the amount of money that we think we would be making if we were still in place, if, we, if the system of governance was one that uh, uh, would use slave labor. And um, two, uh, or the alternative is we simply go in and restore the status quo, which would, of course, have meant reverting to uh, slavery, to work the fields, uh, et cetera, and to continue or to resume the kind of economic activities that the French were now asking compensation for. Uh, how realistic is that threat? Uh, yes, it was very realistic. Uh, we have explicit statements to that effect. And so the question is whether at the time, in 1825, there was anything untoward about this ultimatum. Well, as I said before, the threat of the use of force at the time was generically accepted. Um, it was, however, a problem if... It was for a purpose that was fundamentally unacceptable and unacceptable in the sense of uh, fundamentally offensive to justice and quote unquote, all duties of mankind or humanity. Um, This is uh, not of course reflected now in, in, in any specific legal documents per se, but rather this was what the writers of the time were expressing in terms of when would a treaty that was concluded with or without the threat of use of force have to be deemed invalid. And they said, well, if a treaty is imposed by use of force, 
that's not a problem. But if the underlying rationale is one that we cannot subscribe to, because it violates what they call bonus mores of the times, one of which is if it tries to reintroduce or maintain a system of slavery, then it is invalid. And that was being uh, argued in the beginning of the 19th century. Now, this is to be considered against the background of a general aversion, a beginning aversion to slavery as such. It starts with slave trading. And um, there are clear indications that uh, countries like France and uh, Great Britain in particular were uh, promising each other to tackle slave trading, um, to oppose it. This is, of course, well before the abolition of slavery itself. Nevertheless, um, we have various international uh, agreed to documents such as the Declaration of Vienna, um, the Congress of Aix-La uh, Chapelle, etc., where there are those countries, the, the great powers of the time, Great Britain, Austria, France, Prussia, and Russia, uh, make a solemn commitment to secure and accelerate the complete and final abolition of the slave trade. Um, it is clear that if this is a going concern, even before 1825, and it does involve France, one would have assumed that uh, the reintroduction of a system of slavery into areas that were free of slavery would run directly counter to this uh, commitment that these uh, states made. But the then, um, if I may, uh, we should probably take a break, but I want to ask you one small question uh -huh. uh, before, and hopefully after the break, we can get to sort of the jurisdictional questions and how you thought about that. But this is, this is so very fascinating. One thing that uh, Mark and I have seen along with our um, historian co-author, Kim Oosterlink, uh, is that at least some scholars at the time, or maybe it was French public intellectuals, seemed to make the argument that this was not a treaty, that, they, that because Haiti was still a part of France, uh, a vassal state, that this could not be an international treaty. Of course, I, I think that leads to the conclusion that it was illegal on a different ground. Uh, but um, was this something that you had to wrestle with or was it just widely recognized as a treaty between nations? Because also, I mean, uh, part of the whole reason for this treaty from is that uh, Haiti is not recognized as a nation, particularly by the U.S. that, of course, is, has its thriving uh, slave economy at that time. But I, I went on too long. I wanted to just ask you a small question about whether or not this was an issue as to whether or not this was actually a treaty. Yes, absolutely. Um, the... Um... I didn't speak of a treaty as such because it may not be a formal, formal uh, treaty in that sense, but it is an agreement which is, commits both states under international law. In other words, it creates rights and obligations under international law, is governed by international law, right? 
uh, why is that? Uh, well, of course, if you take the perspective that uh, uh, Haiti is a mere province of uh, or territory of France, hasn't gained independence, then you would say, yes, uh, it is not at, uh, an international agreement. On the other hand, um, in the 19th century, the, uh, the fundamental um, requirements for an entity to become uh, a state was not recognition, but rather was effective separation from the motherland. And that's clearly what had happened in the case of Haiti and France. That was the situation. So uh, if we go by the standards of the time that would apply, and we always have to do that, then Haiti for all practical purposes has become an independent new state in the hemisphere. It's certainly true that very few of any countries recognized it officially, but recognition was not an element necessary to create statehood, as it were. Uh, to give you an example of that, uh, France itself rejected the British diplomatic protest over recognition of the United States. And uh, because the, the British government said the same thing. It said, well, the test here is effective separation. France said effective uh, separation uh, from the motherland is uh, the test of whether or not we're dealing with a new state and that the, the US revolution has brought about a new subject of international law. We recognize it. That's a secondary step. Has nothing to do Super. with the emergence of another entity as a new state. That's great. Um, we should take a break now, and then we'll come back and talk about both jurisdiction and the story of ultimately what happens to all of the work that you did and that uh, Richard Falk and uh, uh, Pierre Klein and Ira Kurzban and what happens to all of it and where this is all standing today. So after the break. So Gunther, my goal was to ask you about the jurisdictional question and how you got around that in this second half of our podcast. But there is a question that puzzles me regarding what we talked about in the first half. So if you don't mind, I hope you'll indulge my asking that question. Uh, you talked about looking to the writings of eminent scholars at the time as a source of law, a source of international law, scholars like Vattel. And I think in our modern legal existence, we would not probably look to the writings of eminent legal scholars as a source of law. But my impression is that things were very different at that time. Am I uh, getting this right? Is that why for, if one is making an argument for 1825, you would actually look to the writings of these scholars? Absolutely. Uh, as I explained just a second ago, the, uh, the writings of uh, eminent scholars and in public international law writers um, 
which is today at best recognized as a subsidiary source of our understanding of what public international law is, at the time when there was much less transparency of uh, what the states were doing, and uh, of course, no internet, et cetera. So um, they were indeed the repository of the knowledge of state practice, customary international law. And for that reason, what they're saying at the beginning of the 19th century uh, is extremely important. And so I cite to Emmerich de Vattel, uh, William Hefter, and others, um, the fathers of the 18th century of international law, if you will, who all are concerned about treaties uh, that do offend fundamental notions of fairness and justice, or, like, or, or what they call the duties of humanity. And um, August Wilhelm Hefter, uh, 19th century German international lawyer, he specifically used the example of a treaty that introduces or maintains a system of slavery as offending the international order public of that early 19th century, and therefore as one that would have to be deemed invalid. These statements from very prominent international legal writers acquire additional importance because of the emerging anti-slavery movement. And uh, as I indicated in the first session already, uh, we have various agreements, declarations, like international conferences, bilateral agreements between you, Great Britain and France, uh, in which countries concerned do um, make a commitment to fight slave trading. And slave trading, of course, being directly related to slavery, but also, of course, to the uh, curtailment of slavery um, and the prohibition of the introduction of slavery into areas where no slavery had previously existed, or the reintroduction, reimposition of slavery onto territories that freed themselves of slavery. So all of that put together uh, persuades me that there is a very strong argument to be made that even in light of then contemporary stand legal standards, a treaty or sorry, an agreement such as the 1825 agreement between France and Haiti, uh, because it was an agreement to pay compensation in lieu of an exchange for quote-unquote recognition and avoidance of the uh, reintroduction of slavery would be null and void. And so, Gunther, where, uh, where does one bring a claim like this? And, and in, some, in some respects, does it, does it matter if, if one can get before a tribunal? Is that the goal or are there particular tribunals that would be especially well-suited for a claim like this? Well, uh, what I suggested to uh, Ira Kirsten and when we went down to, to Haiti, we were talking to government representatives, I said, well, it, this is a really political uh, process that you can get, you're embarking upon. And so it doesn't really matter that much if you have a specific legal forum uh, identified 
where you could bring a claim, as long as it is a plausible case that you might be making, that there is a possibility of going somewhere. So um, first and foremost, the, uh, the moral value of your claim needs to be backed up by evidence of there being a legal dimension to it. And secondly, uh, it would be extremely important and useful, of course, if you could show that, hey, maybe we can make a claim somewhere where we have uh, a captive audience. Um, it could be an international conciliation commission, it could be wh wherever. Uh, as long as we can make a claim uh, that puts France in, in, on, the, on the defensive internationally. Once you do that, uh, you probably are going to deal with a more amenable partner and one that might be willing to settle the matter, you know, um, bilaterally outside of, uh, without washing the laundry, the dirty laundry in the open. This is, as I've said many times before, this is an incredible story. What happens? You do all of this work. Uh, it m must have been a, an enormous amount of historical research, uh, research into uh, the law, the international law of 1825. I know from having done a small amount of international law research, what, how difficult it is to read uh, the materials from then. Uh, I suspect you read and speak multiple languages, but that's a huge task. And, and then you figure out a strategy as you were telling us in your answer to Mark's question, but then the claim never gets brought. Uh, what happened? Well, I'm not entirely sure about that. And uh, we, were, we were having a, a press conference in Port-au-Prince um, and uh, there was, uh, you know, discussed the case, uh, the, not the case per se, but the presentation of the claim. Um, and I do know that the French government became quite alarmed and this sent a special envoy to Port-au-Prince. Um, and I forget his name now, is one guy whom that used in, uh, uh, in, a, in a hostage situation in, in, in Peru. Um, in any event, um, soon afterwards, of course, uh, things started happening in terms of Aristide being removed. And uh, we all know this was, there was a coup d'etat. United States and France were in favor of removing Aristide. Now, I'm not sure what the reasons uh, were that the French had, but I'm sure that one of their concerns was these potential claims surfacing and creating some problems. To what extent this was, uh, you know, these French concerns were uh, the decisive, I don't know, I have no, no idea. But I, what I'm saying is this, that um, there was a willingness on the part of the Haitian government, or certainly on the part of President Aristide, to uh, press ahead with this campaign or to launch it properly. But before it actually could take off, uh, he was removed from power. And so after that, of course, uh, the question was, should we, we, um, Ira Kirsten and others, 
with a similar interest, uh, people in Haiti, should we try and uh, come up with a, with a documentation of sorts uh, or a book that would sort of analyze the claims and uh, provide the documentation and, and, and further develop this. And uh, we didn't go anywhere with it. So yes, it's a pity in, in a way because I went online today and I saw that very recently there were articles being published uh, in the newspapers about the need to, for France to pay Haiti back its $21 billion. And so uh, the 200, uh, uh, the bicentennial came and went. And of course, President um, Hollande went to France. This was, by the way, the first presidential visit or high ranking French official visit uh, over 200 years, right? Whereas that two uh, presidents of the United States had visited Haiti before the French president did. Uh, it was not until 2004 that Hollande showed up and he initially indicated by mistake, it seems, that he was willing to settle the debt and everybody in Haiti seemed to uh, rejoice at that. And uh, then he said, well, it was misunderstood. He was only going to settle France's moral debt, not the financial debt. And this is where we are right now. So I think the, I mean, there is a moral debt. There's no question about it. But I think it's more than that. I think there is a, a very strong legal case that could be made. Um, and I'm sure that the French recognize the, the danger of that. Now, I, I think 21 billion then and now 31 billion, the equivalent of what it would have been in 2003. I'm referring to 21 billion because this is exactly what President Aristide was arguing. He said, well, 21,685,135,000 US dollars plus 48 cents, much to the amusement of the French senators. They got a report about this um, uh, and they were quoting this figure that uh, President Aristide had uh, transmitted to, to the French government. But this would be now 31 billion. It's not a huge amount of money for a country like France, but it is one that, um, yes, would cause some hiccups in Paris. And so I know that, um, and, and Gertha, we've taken a lot of your time, but I hope I can just squeeze in one more question that is on a bit of a tangent uh, because you so you referenced early on the involvement of at least one u.s bank i assume you're referring to national city bank um, and the sort of involvement of uh, national city but also the u.s government and u.s armed forces in haiti throughout much of the early 20th century and i just can we talk a little bit briefly about how one thinks about the the sort of extended history of imperial interventions into a country like Haiti? I, in some ways, it's a it. This is a tangent because 
you're focused on a claim that might arise out of one discrete historical episode in 1825, but there's also something artificial in some way about that. Um, so I, I guess one way to ask the question is, isn't this in reality the first of, if we take this seriously, isn't this the first of many claims that Haiti or a country in its position might assert against its former colonial oppressors? And I guess if we think of it that way, maybe the French resistance starts to seem a little, a little more um, uh, predictable, I guess. Well, uh, I Yes, I, I totally agree. The situation is very complex, to say the least. And um, <clears throat> the, uh, I mean, one shouldn't, one can't sort of uh, forget about the fact that uh, Haitians themselves have contributed quite a bit to the misery in the country, obviously, uh, the civil wars, the divisions within the country, the incredible corruption uh, and so forth. All of that are major factors. But the reason why the debt of 1825 is important is that it forced the country back to an economy that um, required indentured laborers to work um, pretty much in the same style as slaves had been working beforehand in order to satisfy to make it possible for the country to meet its obligations, financial obligations vis-a-vis -vis France. And they were so burdensome that in, nine, in 1838, France relented and reduced the debt somewhat. But uh, it was clear that the 1830, uh, 1825 debt was a key factor and putting this country on a course of misery and non-recovery or the prevention of uh, uh, a normal sustainable evolution towards uh, a more normal society. Um, all that being said with huge caveats, of course, right? Because we had all these interventions by various countries, Britain, Germany, of course, the United States, the long military occupation, which was beneficial in many ways to, to Haiti, but also negative in many others. Uh, all that said, yes, it creates additional problems, potential liabilities, what have you. It's difficult to figure out what the costs and benefits are. But that's not the point. The point is that the attempt to re-enslave the population simply to uh, squeeze the country the same way it had been squeezed beforehand, before the revolution, before the declaration of independence. That was a very important uh, landmark in the history of the country. And it set the course for the next two centuries, basically. And it is, with all the other calamities that befell natural or man-made that befell the country, of course, uh, it's clear that um, the other factors involved. However, uh, I think the independence debt is a very, very critical aspect, uh, underlying cause of the present failures of Haitian society governance and the misery in the country.
Gunther, thank you so very much for giving us your time. This, this has been the highlight of our season and we've learned so much from you. So, and we're also so glad that this story is getting told. Mark and I worry that the story will otherwise just get lost in the proverbial sands of time. So it, it is coming back. People are talking about it today, but very with very little knowledge of the history that came before us. So I, I hope we have remedied that to a little extent. Well, I certainly appreciate your efforts and I hope that uh, you're right about this. Um, they certainly are um, reaching out to others. And I don't know to what extent you make your podcast available to a larger audience, but if you do, well, that would uh, be definitely for the for the good of uh, you know the situation that uh, Haiti is facing. But as I said, I'm I'm encouraged to see that there was a an outpouring of of, uh, of uh, questions about Haiti and the French relationship to the uh, to the debt um, in 2000, following 2000 uh, 2004, and I see some other. But looking at the date now, uh, 2017, uh, Forbes, for example, a nice article there. Maybe you're stirring up a hornet's nest, maybe not, but whatever it is, thanks for uh, doing this. Thank you so much for joining us.